You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles Podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? My name is Dan Johnson, and I have a confession to make. I am pretty much addicted to bow hunting. I think about South Dakota, it's been probably a hundred days in a row. I've thought about that. I've thought about South Dakota bow hunting for mule deer every single day since I left in October. Uh, I am now, it's, it really is distracting at times because not only am I thinking about trying to shoot a mule deer with my bow, um, I'm also thinking about trying to shoot an elk with my bow because there's a chance I draw an elk tag in Wyoming this year. And on top of it, I have my baseline whitetail addiction. So I am thinking about (laughs) bow hunting almost all the time now. And uh, it is a little bit distracting, especially when uh, my wife is trying to tell me some kind of story about something that I don't care about. (laughs) Or I'm listening to somebody else like, hey, uh, hey, Dan, how's this and this? And like small talk. All I'm doing in my head is thinking about like hunting and uh you know i understand that um people may think i'm interested in stuff other than bow hunting but i'm not like it's crazy it is crazy how much i think about uh bow hunting and just like the dumb shit like access routes and and wind direction and terrain and, and trying to gain access to new properties and just a whole bunch of new crazy I don't know. I, I don't know. I actually pro- I, I should actually try to get a psychiatrist uh, on the podcast to talk about what actual addiction is and see if maybe some of us have a bow an actual bow hunting addiction. 
So uh, that's where my mind's at right now. But we have an actual, we actually have a really good episode today. We're going to be talking uh, to a guy out of Michigan. His name is Jack Ruthruff. And Jack in 2020 worked 200, no, 1,200 hours of overtime. And uh, to put that into perspective, that's like an extra an extra week a month or two weeks a month or something like that. Anyway, it's a shit ton of hours in a year. And so he only between working overtime, you know, his regular job, he works all this overtime, his family and his other responsibilities as a husband and father, the dude only got out for five hunts, not five days, but five different hunts throughout the 2020 season. And he got the job done and that's what this episode is about you know we kind of break down um how he made this work with the limited time uh with all you know the 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 covid thing going on uh i guess he and you'll hear in the the podcast um what he what company works for and what he makes and i guess why there's a huge demand on these products so it's uh just a really interesting episode I, I feel like if I'm hunting, you know, if I'm not scouting, if I'm not, uh, you know, checking trail cameras, if I'm not planning or strategizing or trying to get out and, and do something, shed hunt, whatever, uh, to improve my odds for the fall and then hunt my ass off in the fall, like I feel like I'm missing the boat. And this guy goes out and he gets the job done in five different hunts. So it's a really cool, uh, a really cool episode. But before we get into today's episode, we got to do some housekeeping real quick. Um, go check out the Land and Legacy uh they're, they're having these day camps, or I forget what they're actually called, but these, uh, th- these um, places, I think there's one in Michigan or Ohio. I, I'm sorry, the details are completely wrong. And then one in the south. So one in the south and then one in the north. And it's these, uh, these field days where they walk you through all this habitat improvement uh, stuff. So go to the Land and Legacy. Um, their podcast is on the Sportsman's Nation, just like this one is, uh, the podcast network. And go check out these um, these tutorials or these field days where they take groups of people out into the timber. Uh, there's a selected farm. There's gonna they're gonna talk about all these. Uh, I think it's Michigan. Yeah, Michigan, and then another one down south. But uh, it's just they break down habitat improvement. They're gonna talk about fire and plants and basic species, like all these really awesome things. So do me a favor and go to the Land and Legacy um, Facebook page and Instagram feed and just look for that, or you can just go to the Land and Legacy website and uh, or you know get a hold of guys and ask them if if uh, learning about what these guys do interests you because I'm telling you right now they are the best in the game when it comes to habitat management right these guys are the top very top tier um, and they're very knowledgeable very intelligent and they have a way of explaining what they do and how what they do works to people like me uh, to make it easy, right? So uh, that's something to look at. Make sure you're following along on Instagram and Facebook, uh, Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Nation. Make sure you're subscribing to the Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Nation RSS feeds. And you can do that at iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. And uh, 
I think that's it as far as housekeeping is concerned. Ooh, 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 I forgot to tell you this. Uh, first week in March, I'm going to record my very first episode of the Nine Finger Kitchen. And I'm telling, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to give you a sneak peek right now in what we're cooking. And it's venison meatloaf. It is one of my favorite recipes. There are no leftovers when I cook this uh, when I cook this meal. Uh, my kids eat it. My wife eats it. Everybody loves it. And uh, I'm going to throw that together on a video. And I'm going to launch it on the Sportsman's Nation uh, YouTube channel. So keep an eye out for that. And now we got to do a commercial. And today's commercials are from Ozonics and Lone Wolf. Now, you guys know that I've been using Ozonics for a very long time. I mean, since the unit that I carried around was the size of a DVD player and about as heavy as a brick, no lie. I took it in the tree, one of the very first times that I ever used it, and I was and some does got downwind and they didn't even they didn't they put their nose in the air and they didn't really blow and they kept moving through. And I was like, right then and there I go, are you kidding me? Like I had I had what they call an aha moment right and since then obviously their units now are putting out way more ozone their um they have new products like their their locker and their um, their dry wash bags and basically what those are is not only can you use the unit in the tree in your hunting strategy to cut the wind and protect your uh, downwind side but then once you get out of the timber you can hang all of those dirty soiled clothes and when I mean dirty, I don't mean mud dirty, I mean scent dirty. You hang it in there, you'd run a dry wash cycle on their unit, all that ozone kills the germs, bacteria, and scent. You put it back on, you're feeling fresh for the next hunt. So if you want to find out more information about uh, the Ozonics units, go to ozonicshunting.com. And I do have a discount code here, uh, Ozonics, and it's NFC19. Pretty sure that's the most accurate and up-to-date uh, discount code. But when you purchase a unit, enter that discount code NFC19, and you get a free dry wash bag with your purchase. I think that's like a hundred bucks. So it's a, it's a, a free dry wash bag with the purchase of any unit. And I'm telling you right now, both in the field and out of the field, it's, uh, it's a big deal, man. I, I love that product. Second, Lone Wolf, man. I mean, what do you say? It's like an appendage on me by this point. Uh, it's easy to set up and I've been using it for a long time. So it is, it's almost like breathing. I'm not having to think about it. I feel confident with this product. And when you feel confident with a product and you don't have to think about that product when I'm tearing down and we're setting up and tearing down, setting up and tearing down, making moves all season long, it's quiet. I know it's going to perform and it does what I need it to do, and I it puts me in the right spot, not the the right tree. I don't need a straight tree, right? And that's that's the big difference between a lot of the stands that are on the market. It's oh well, my stand can't get in this tree, and then guess what? Buck walks 10, 10 yards outside of your shooting you know lane because you were in the wrong tree you need to be in a crooked tree and lone wolf allows you to set up in a crooked tree man i mean that's really all there is it's not heavy uh, it's not it's not uh it's not cumbersome and once you learn how to use it, it goes up quick comes down quick and it's very quiet and that's what i need personally when i'm running and gunning all over the timber so if you want to find out more information about all of the products that lone wolf 
portable tree stands offers, go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com. And if you want to save some money on your purchase, here's the discount code, and that is 9FC50. 9FC50. And what that's going to do is it's going to allow you to save $50 off all orders over $200, right? So you spent, you buy a tree stand for like $250, and you're going to take $50 off. And there you go, it's only 200 bucks. So that's a win right there. All right, long intro. I apologize. I just had to cover all those bases. Let's get into today's, I don't know, Hunter Profile success story type of podcast with Jack Ruthruff. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Jack Ruthruff. Jack, how we doing, man? Good. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing good, man. And you're you're all the way from Michigan, right? Yes, sir. Okay, right so, in mid Michigan. All right. So let me ask you a question. Um, I went to Michigan. I hunted there for like three or four days. I struck out. Um, does that make me a bad hunter, or is that pretty much standard for hunting Michigan that time of year? Oh, not at all. That Michigan is Michigan can can be very very tough. Very very tough. I know you were definitely hitting the public land pretty hard, and um, my hat's off to you. It, public land hunting in Michigan is is very very difficult, and that's a new challenge I'm going to be trying to take on this year myself. Uh, yeah. But no, you are not a bad hunter at all. <laughs> well, that was an opportunity for you to just really slam me and be like, "Of, of <laughs> course, dude! Of course, you're a bad hunter, right? Of course, you are." <laughs> right. So uh, you live in Michigan. Um, uh, mid Michigan in the mitten, right? Uh, what do you do for a living? I work for a uh, manufacturing company. I work for SE Johnson, and we make about ninety-five percent of all the Ziploc brand bags in the world. Come out of a little little site here in town. Okay, that's that's crazy because I know a guy who works for Reynolds, uh, Reynolds Wrap or something like that, and he I think he makes all the tinfoil. That kind of it, yep. uh, lots of tinfoil. So uh, you're in the, uh, he's in the tinfoil game. You're in the Ziploc uh, bag game. And uh, those are two products that are probably, if not in every household in America, uh, in a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. It's been uh, very, very busy to say the least uh, with the pandemic going on. Demand skyrocketed for our product. So, do you know why that it's been, is? Been very busy. Um, a lot of people in the when the meat shortages started to happen, they were going into meat markets buying up their meat, and then they want to throw it in the freezer, so they're buying Ziploc freezer bags to gotcha. throw, you know, throw their food in in the freezer and preserve food as long as they can. Yeah. And it's not like plastic bags are really reusable, right? You, most people don't rinse right. them, rinse them out and, uh, uh, use them again. So it's one of those products. It's like a one-time use deal and just keeps going and going. Um, and it's funny. I shouldn't say it's funny. Maybe it's, maybe it's funny. Maybe it's not depending on what way you're looking at it. Um, but it says here 1200 hours of overtime. You worked 1200 hours of overtime in 2020. Of overtime. In 2020, and I took them. I didn't work any overtime in the month of November because I wanted to spend time with family and hunt. Okay, so <laughs> but yeah, 1,200 hours. Man, overtime. that is crazy. Like, I, 
I never ever calculated it, but there was a time uh, when I worked in Alabama. I worked at a a factory, and it was third shift work. So um, it was a like a Tyson plant where they would make chicken strips and cubed meat for soups. Um, so we had a breading station. We had a um, a big freezer that we had to clean. We had uh, like uh, like the raw areas that needed to be. Um, you know, cleaned all the time. And man, there was a, there was a time where I think I worked 120 plus days in a row at bare minimum, uh, uh, 12 hour days. I, I can, oh. I can remember being there for 14 to 16 hours someday. And I, I was the crew, I was the manager who led the sanitation crew. So, uh, we were there at like eight o'clock at night waiting for them to get done. And then we would run all, you know, we would clean them all the equipment and then the USDA would have to inspect it, um, before they could start the running their meat, you know, the next morning. And man, someday, sometimes it was extremely messy in there and it sucked and it wore me out. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah. So, but $1,200 of OT, man, or 1200, uh, 1200 hours of OT, you know, I bet you like those paychecks. Yeah. Yeah. The wife really liked them too. <laughs> Did any of that money make it into your hunting budget? Uh, I bought some tags. That was about it. I think. Yeah. <laughs> this year. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, actually, uh, she did let me buy a saddle this year, so that's going to be on the 2020. Uh, it's going to be in the 2021 arsenal, I should say. Gotcha. Um, so you you jumped on the mobile. you uh, you jumped on the saddle uh, wagon, huh? Well, I've got a I've got an assault, um, an old school original assault at home too, uh, four sticks. So I just want to add it as another tool and another option. Uh, depending on where I'm going and how much running and gunning I'm going to be doing. So. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, you ended up, you ended up working like I'm doing the math here. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's, it's about, you got the job done on two really good deer in Michigan this year. Uh, with very limited hunting because of your work schedule. Um, and so I just did some quick math. So each month you did, uh, you basically worked two and a half weeks extra, right? If, if we're basing every, everything off of mm -hmm. a 40 hour work week, you in a, in an average month, you crammed two and a half weeks more hours into every month than a, a regular 40 hour shift. So um, just that alone, right? Probably makes a guy tired um, and it limits cool. everything else. Yeah. It limits everything else that you can do within a, a certain month. So let me ask you, let me ask you this working so much and, you know, obviously that takes a, a, away from a lot of different things. How, how did you still go about, I don't know, did you do any types of summer scouting or, or did you hunt on a property that you already knew? Did you, um, you know, did you run trail cameras? Did you just wing it? And do you think this, this season was straight luck? Um, uh, one property, uh, I shot, um, a buck on November 1st on that is, um, a small four acre parcel that we have had for over 30 years. Uh, so that one, 
I already, that property I already knew, pretty much have had dialed in for years. I do run trail cameras on it in September, early October to get my inventory. And then I just stay and I'll check them about every four days, midday, and wait till just the right conditions because of it being such a small parcel of property and not trying to blow everything out. Yeah. Um, and that one, that buck, I, I was able to harvest on a, on a well-known property. The other buck, um, it was pretty much, uh, I didn't scout it until October 3rd. I hung my stand, figured I'd get with it. I, I tried to find the spot within the spot. I scouted October 3rd, shot a doe October 5th, then stayed out till the rut and shot my biggest buck um, in Michigan on November 13th. So I just tried to optimize my time as best as possible when i came to scouting finding the exact spot i wanted to be in and then stayed out and waited until the conditions were perfect yeah so did you hunt much in october at all i hunted one day on the four acre parcel and um one day on the on the other property that i shot a doe on october 5th i hung my stand the third i shot her on the fifth and then um, I hunted uh, October 25th on the four-acre parcel. Okay. And I didn't see anything. So I, that was my pretty much my pre-rut scout, and that was it. Gotcha. More of an observation set. Gotcha. So only two days in the month of October, two hunts in the month of October. Yep. 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 Okay. And then, so then you hunted, obviously, you killed a deer on November 1st and the 13th, and that brings us to four hunts. Um, and then was there a hunt in between? Cause what did you say? You only hunted five days, five days, uh, five yeah, days around November 8th or 9th. Um, when that real warm streak spell hit the Midwest, I, I did hunt one day in that. Yeah. And, um, that it didn't, it didn't pan out. I, <clears throat> I got drawn back on a doe from the ground at about four or five yards away, but she spooked before I could get the trigger pulled. Yeah. So, so what's your mindset going into something like that? Cause if someone came up to me and said, Dan, you can only hunt five days in this whitetail season here in Iowa, I would probably have an anxiety attack and, and pass out. Right. right. Like, Oh, uh, what? Oh no. you like so many things would have to change for me. Um, is, is this a normal occurrence for you or was it just this year? Uh, it's, since the kids have come along, it's kind of started to become more of a norm. Um, I just try to be as, a, as selective as possible to on my days that I do get to hunt to put myself in the right position to harvest an animal. And, you know, especially the, this other property, I just started to be able to hunt this year. Um, other than that, I was just hunting four acres the last eight or nine years since uh, our farm was sold gotcha that we were hunting on um so i try to i pretty much have it dialed in it's just i try to be selective then on what days i can go in there and and really uh push the limits yeah because with it only being four acres it, it's it's very easy to blow it all out yeah and i have a feeling if i had to guess i would say that there are more people in your shoes, let's just say um, uh, that the that the Sportsman's Nation and the Nine Finger Chronicles was, you know, like I don't even, I still honestly don't even consider this a real job, right? But <laughs> but 
let's just say all things are the same, right? I still spend a ton of time uh, throughout the year traveling. Uh, you know, I would be using PTO and, and even before this, when I was still living that cubicle life, um, that I, you know, I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, doing all these other things to prepare for the season. Um, are you still doing all of the, all of the ton of preparing or are you the kind of guy who just is like, I pick up the bow a couple months before the season starts, start shooting, or are you shooting all year? Do you have like your tree stands already set? How's what's, what's your layout like? I try to shoot all year. Um, I mean, I was very blessed uh, before my dad passed. I grew up in this industry. He was a rep uh, over the road covering four states and worked for a lot of different manufacturers in the hunting in the hunting and archery industry. Um, so I try to shoot as much as I possibly can uh, year round. Okay. On the four acre parcel, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, on the four acre parcel. Um, that's pretty much a couple of set stands, but now I am going to, uh, I'm going to do some work on the property this year. Um, get it cleared out some more, plant some food plots and, um, try and go mobile on it, even though it is only a little four acre parcel. Um, just so I can try and play just off winds a little bit better. Um, put myself in a little bit better position to get closer to their bedding, which I'm really tight now but i want to get even tighter and the other parcel that i was just able to start hunting this year i'm just i'm going to start going more mobile um so the scouting will start a lot more in the spring and summertime now that i have other properties that i'm going to be able to hunt and bob miller one of your previous guests he and i are going to start hunting some public land Uh, we've known bob for quite a long time and we've become pretty good buddies since he got me going on your podcast so we're gonna start hitting some public ground together um so we give each other a little little bit of a hard time he's a lone wolf guy and a tree stand only and i'm getting into the saddle game so we like to uh give each other a hard time about that going (laughs) back and forth i feel you all right so with you know being selective it is great, right? You have this limited time. Uh, you have this smaller, let's just say for all certain, you know, for all, uh, I don't know, for all purposes here, we're talking about, uh, four acres, right? So, you know, from hunting it over the years, when, and when, and you can't like when you can, and when you can't go in and hunt it, right? If it's a, is there a, is there a certain wind on that property where it's just a no go? All right. I can't hunt it on this wind. Hmm. North and south winds are actually typically the worst, um, and east. Dead west wind is, is typically best, or uh, northwest or southwest. It's a narrow piece uh, that runs lengthwise east and west. So if I try to get into the middle, I hunt on one end of it. If I try to get into the middle, a north-south wind blows blows my wind everywhere in there um and the, to the west is really heavy bedding in a in a big ditch where they like to go to get water so and east is really really pushing and i gotta wait for it to be a very very calm east wind 
uh, or have pictures essentially of, of the deer on the east side of the property to to really warrant me even getting too deep into it. Right. So here's here's a, a problem that I used to have uh, a while ago. Um, not I would say maybe six years ago, seven years ago, where I had the ability to hunt. The wind wasn't necessarily the right way. And I was never the guy who said, yeah, I'm just playing off tonight. I'm not going to go in. I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to hunt, right? And I, if I knew a big buck was in an area, I would try to find a way to get in there. And most times, I, some way, shape, or form, I would probably get busted or I would bump something coming in or, or whatever. So how, how hard is it for, you know, let's just say you had a day off. Or, you know, or the, con- the conditions were, were not necessarily right, but you had some time to hunt. Like, how hard was it to stay out of some of these farms, given, given that you did have, you know, some, some time to throw at hunting? Uh, I almost had an anxiety attack a few times. <laughs> Years ago, uh, in 2012, I was chasing 100 and which some guys might not think it's big but in michigan standards today i was chasing 130 135 inch split brow split g2 uh buck back there that i had pictures of them early october like the 5th and then the 25th of october and i stayed out of that property until november 5th and i know there was eight guys within a half a mile there that were chasing after that deer okay and i was the only one that put put eyes on them in daylight hours yeah but i waited i just stayed out and stayed out and stayed out and waited and waited and waited and it was killing me not to go in there after him yeah knowing he was in the area but so it was it was hard let me ask you this what sucks worse for you having to play off in some of these scenarios where the wind isn't right and the conditions aren't right, but you have the time or the opposite where the conditions are perfect, but you have to go to work. I don't know which is worse. I, I think when the conditions aren't right, we're busy enough at work. I could at least um, justify it by calling and going in and, you know, see if they need help. And I could play it off in my head that, oh, don't worry, I'm going to work. But if I'm stuck at work, I think that's actually, with the perfect conditions, that's probably worse. Yeah. Yeah, man. I can remember, you know, I can remember when I first took the jump over to, uh, you know, when I got laid off from my real my real job and started working here. I was just remembering, like, okay, well, I got to do this, this, and this. And I would look at the weather and I would say, Oh my God, there's a mini cold front coming through here in October. I'm going to, I'm going to go hunting tonight and I could go hunting as opposed to, or maybe a morning hunt. Uh, And in the past it was like, okay, well, if I do this, I got to calculate my, uh, my time off. Am I able to take it off? And if I do take it off, how is that going to affect my other hunts? You know, if I go to, if I, if I have a, um, my rut vacation and, and all these things. So everything was so calculated down to, the uh you know down to the specific hour and i took every single hour of of pto that i could oh yeah yeah how how many how many hours of pto do you get uh 
it's around 110, 100. No, it's it's just shy. we work 12 hour shifts, and it's just shy of uh, 10 days. It's a, well, basically like 10 days. It's like within an hour, a couple hours of of 10 days off. Okay. So, all right. Um, so 10 days off, and um, so wh- where does most of your vacation then go? Those 10 days, is, are those those five days of hunting? And then, you know, some goes to the family and, and sick leave? Or how do you how do you distribute that? We uh, we were going to swing shift. So, fortunately, I didn't have to burn a, vac- a hour of vacation um, to hunt these five times. But because um, we were, we swing from days to nights and nights to days and we have a kind of a, a difficult schedule to get used to, but um, it does allow hunting like during the week when there is less pressure and commotion. Yeah. So most of my vacation time and PTO time goes to the family. Yeah. Because um, then I can spend more time with them doing that. And then when hunting season comes, my wife is usually pretty understanding uh, and helpful. And then, uh, my mom helps with the, watching the kids and stuff too. So we have a pretty good, uh, pretty good system going, but, um, we'll see this year. She's starting to light, lighten up the rain. So <laughs> uh, maybe I'll be able to spend a, some more time in the woods and whatnot and burn up some of the vacation doing that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as long as mom's happy, everybody's happy, right? that's right that's right so let's talk a little bit about these two deer um that you ended up uh you know harvesting or killing this year what um uh let's start let's start with the small acreage the four right we've already talked a little bit about you know the the conditions that you need for that particular piece um what makes this little four acres huntable all right. Talk about the terrain features. Is it thick? You know, is it surrounded by other blocks of timber or ag or, you know, is there a funnel through it? It's thick. Um, used to be nearly, uh, almost like a CRP type field with just a, a few trees in it that, and you could see all the way to the back. It's just a, a real narrow, it's only about 50 yards wide and all about 400 yards deep. <clears throat> um, and over the years, the buckthorn and autumn olive and tag olives have taken off. And there's two clearings, uh, what I call the uh, on the front side on the east, that are about 30 yards across, circular shaped, and then, and then they pretty much join together on uh, one corner of them. And that is where it's so thick. I believe that that's where the like, the deer like to just start to relax and um, go to just to get away from out of the thickness. Yeah. So I hunt on the, the very east end of it, but, um, I mean, you can't see. Once you get into the tag allers, you can't, uh, into the buckthorn, you can't see 12, 15 feet in front of you. I mean, it, it's so thick. And these two little clearings that are left that haven't grown over, um, we planted some alfalfa in there a few years ago. And so there's still a little bit of that sparsely in through there. Um, there are some oaks bordering the property in a couple of spots. So 
they use it more as a travel corridor and the does like to stay up towards the front and the bucks like to travel north and south on the west end of the western end of the property and then as the rut comes they will start to use the trails closer and closer to the east and they will then stand up they'll check visually check the both clearings from the west west side of it um, as far as the layout it's it's pretty tough to beat for around here yeah so is it more of a doe bedding area and the bucks move in during the the rut or is it a yep. you know holding spot for bucks all year round i i mostly hold the does yeah. um i know a guy about a mile and a half away who has gets a lot of trail camera pictures of the bucks that i shoot he'll get them um, he'll have them um, he holds a lot of the bucks over there in october and then up until the end of October, and then it seems like they all migrate over to the piece of woods that we have. Uh, our four acres is a, is a small chunk in about a 45-acre parcel of woods. And they travel from where he's at. So he has the bachelor over there, and then they come over to uh, our property during the rut. And uh, the buck I shot this year, he had a picture of that buck. 24 hours prior um to when i shot him and that was a mile and a half away so yeah. so uh you got the does and the does are very important as we all know right they are so yep so i mean is there a time of year then that you know you've been hunting this property this small property for a very long time and it seems like you've got it kind of figured out do you ever make moves into it early or stay out of it even during prime time uh and and maybe wait till after the rut's over or or um is it always i know that i need to be in there the first week in november or the first you know however many times during november or are you flexible with that and say hey man i have enough i have enough data where i should go in now and whether that's december or october um it's usually the first 10 days in November, uh, you know, just like most of the Midwest, you know, that peak pre into the, into the peak of the rut. Um, I will, you know, I'll throw my rubber boots on and probably push a little more than I should once in a while around Halloween and maybe November 4th. If I haven't seen anything on my cameras and I'll take a trip to the West side of it to the, to the back see if I can I'm finding scrapes or rubs and if I'm not then I'll just I literally will just wait another week and then I'll get aggressive I do have a couple of stands towards the back and they're they're risky because it is such a small piece yeah. I will push it to get all the way back there but that's a, a pretty much a swing for the fence yeah. um because when I come walking out I'm usually blowing everything out of there and I won't see anything for a week or two really so it's yeah. one of those things where it it's basically a is it a morning spot or an evening spot oh both both, both. this year i shot that buck in the morning and then last year i shot uh the buck that i harvested back there i shot him in the evening um so both morning and evening not much midday actually yeah. not not much midday um but mostly the first hour of daylight and in the last hour. Is there a 
do you have a preference on that farm? Uh, I mean, it sounds to me like it, it, there's not really one, but historically has that, that small piece been a better evening or a morning spot? Mm. Mornings, mornings during the rut. Okay. All right. And I, I shouldn't say it because, uh, I'm, I, a moon guy. I do like, I do love a full moon. Um, but it, during the rut, something about it on that piece of property, it almost seems to condense, say, a, a seven to 12 day peak rut for chasing. It narrows it down almost to like a three to four day on that. For something in particular about the full moon, I've been watching it for, I don't know, about 15, 20 years now. Yeah. And, if that full moon lands from November 1st to November 10th, it's like my rut activity on there condenses right down on the chasing to about three days. Okay. And then it's, then it's done. So you don't want a full moon in that time frame. Oh, I will. Oh, no, I do. Oh, you I do. do. Yep. Okay. Oh, I want a morning full moon. Um, something about it on the, I, I don't know what it is, but, that property i've i've shot more bucks in the morning during a coming off of the full moon like if it was the full moon that night than if i was to wait until what they say is a better time you know during during the rut i guess i should say okay all right so talk to us a little bit about what this deer was doing on november 1st when you ended up shooting him and and do you have any history with this buck I got pictures of him on October 2nd uh, with uh, another eight point about the same size. They were also sparring that night. I got a picture of him coming up a trail, and then they were sparring in front of the camera with another with a smaller third buck behind him. And um, I never, I didn't have another picture of him at all the whole month of October. And then I uh, took the kids out trick-or-treating. I told the wife I got to hunt in the morning. And it was rainy and cold that night. And I was able to slip out to uh, the blind I was hunting out of. And I got out there about a half hour before daylight. And I happened to get settled in. And next thing I know, there's a doe standing out there in front of me at about 30 yards. And she took, uh, took off to the North and <clears throat> I could see her in the, under the full moon in the twilight. And all of a sudden I could just hear, I couldn't hear him very, I heard him grunting and I pulled my binoculars and some cloud cover had cleared and it got light enough. I could see the frame of his horns. Like, all right. Well, at least I know there's a, a deer running, a buck running around here. And he chased her to the north. They came running out from then just about underneath me. And he pushed her to the south. And about 10 minutes later, she stepped back out in front of me as it's getting, I'm waiting for it to get lighter and lighter and waiting for legal shooting light. And then I can hear him grunting and I can't see him as this cloud cover keeps blocking the moonlight. And I'm now waiting for it to get to daylight. And then all of a sudden I caught a glimpse of him. And he's bedded 25 yards away from me, quarter to me, staring at me. And, or looking in my direction, I should say. 
sun, just waiting for, waiting for it to get lighter and lighter. And, um, I can hear, I can see her walking around once in a while through my binoculars and it got to be, it got to be about, oh, 10 minutes after legal shooting light. And he finally stood up and he took about three or four steps because she had uh, started to get a little antsy. They were, he bedded down for her in front of me for about 35, 40 minutes. Yeah. And once he stood up, he uh, took about everything he had on him to get, to get stood up. So I knew he had just, just started chasing because he hadn't, he hadn't thinned out at all or anything from, from chasing yet. And I let him take about three or four steps, and that was when I was able to take the shot. Nice. So was he doing what, like, all the deer had been doing, like just kind of working their way through the property, or was he actually nose yeah. to the ground, like, searching for does? He he came from the west, um, and when he can typically there, he came, when I first saw him and he was grunting, his nose was to the ground and then he started pushing her everywhere and had um, his nose to the ground when he pushed her off to the south and then when she stepped back out and then she wanted to tend to mill around and feed around in the CRP type grass and, and the alfalfa a little bit and he just bedded right down um, yeah. waiting for her to get done so that's uh, it was killing me though to to know he was laying down there, and then for it to get to be legal shooting light, then for it to get to be plenty of light without even a question, and he's sitting there quartered at me. At that point, he was maybe twenty five yards away. Okay. Uh, and I I was using my dad's crossbow that uh, that he was was given to him. Um. And so I had this crossbow, and it could have easily. I didn't want, there was a tree covering his vitals or the bottom two thirds of his vitals. I didn't want to take a shot, but to sit there and watch that deer knowing it probably would have been at that time would have been the biggest buck I had shot in Michigan. Um, a 25 yards away quarter to me was, uh, had my adrenaline going to say the least. (laughs) I believe it, man. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, this was, was this the biggest buck you've ever shot? In Michigan. In Michigan. In Michigan. Okay. So it it's still something special, right? Maybe not the biggest buck you've right. ever shot, but for the state that you live in, I mean, it, it holds some kind of importance. Um, right. You know, are you the kind of guy who gets really fired up and maybe gets a little case of the buck fever, or have you learned to tame that? Uh, usually, usually I get the big adrenaline dump is soon as they like when i see see a buck that i want to shoot and then if i give if i'm able to get about 30 seconds to a minute to calm down i can usually calm down without a problem and, and take a shot whether it's a compound crossbow rifle if i'm given a, a minute to get my composure it, it's usually not a not a problem but for some reason I think it was the duration of waiting almost 35, 40 minutes for this deer to, to get up or for it to get light enough to shoot. 
uh, and you get to Lego shooting time and then wait for him to stand up and make his move. That was probably the hardest part. And that's probably what got me rattled more than that, you know, the most, but yeah. usually I, I'm pretty calm and able to make the shot. Yeah. Well, that's good, man. Um, because I don't know, there's still a part of me that suffers from the, the two things. One, if I have history with a deer, uh, with a buck, and I think I've mentioned this before on another uh, episode, but if I have history with a deer who's a shooter, let's just say I've I've seen him as a two-year-old, three-year-old, and now he's a four-year-old or, or whatever that those numbers are, and uh, I see him coming my way uh, or see him in the field or whatever, knowing that he's a shooter and I've watched him or passed him previously, that gets me fired up, right? I mean, really fired up as opposed to I don't get near as fired up if I... I identify a buck through my binos or see one coming that I've never seen before. So Mm -hmm. I don't get, I don't get fired up that way, but there's still a little part of me that, you know, if it's, if it's the biggest deer I've ever seen, or if it's the biggest deer I've ever shot, or, you know, I still, I still get buck fever, um, a little bit of buck fever when those scenarios kind of play out. If you don't get buck fever and a, or a big adrenaline dump, then it's time to hang it up. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a little part of me, but at the same time, man, I don't know about you, but I wish I could be the guy who's just that stone cold, no emotion killer, right? Where the buck, right. com- the buck comes in, you slay it. And then you, ha- then you can break down and have that, that yeah. buck fever. I wish I was like that, but I, man, for some reason, I just, I'm not quite there yet. I'm usually better with that with bears than I am with deer. <laughs> yeah, I don't For know. For some reason, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why, but a bear, not a problem. A deer does does tend to get a little more buck feverish at the moment of the shot. Yeah. But. I don't know, man. I I When it comes to animals that I don't, that I'm not currently all worked up about, like, uh, when I went and went elk hunting one time, I, I had some bugles. I mean, they were real close. Uh, the guy, the, the bull actually came down and my buddy had like a 25 yard shot at it. And, um, that it had me excited, but it didn't have me as fired up as a whitetail hunt from, from the, I think I, I knew like at that point I have a job to do, right? This is my job. I have to, I'm, I'm, I got another guy down there, down the hill trying to call it in or whatever, but it was, uh, it was a really, I don't know. It's just something about whitetails. Uh, and if I have experience with that particular buck that mm-hmm. it gets me, it gets me crazy. So you ended up shoot, you ended up shooting this deer. Um, and when, when you shot it, you know, after you shot it, did you drill it right away and you knew it was dead or did you have any type of questionable shot? Uh, no, I, I knew I had, I pretty much knew I had drilled it. Um, he went, Oh, about 75 yards. He actually went further than I expected. I mean, I took out both lungs and the liver. Um, and I just, uh, I knew I'd hit him well, but I think because he was so rutted up the doe he was with, she took off and that was the direction he went. And I, I can't believe he went as far as he did, but um, I expected him to see him piled up at about 40 yards. But I think yeah. he was just so running up and on so much adrenaline that, and with chasing her, he didn't know didn't know what had even happened. Yeah, 
Yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, um, after you, did you realize what you shot at that point? What, I mean, did you know it was potentially going to be your biggest Michigan buck at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, uh, you held it together, you drilled them and, and now what was, you know, I always love this question. The first time you ever, like for me, it's, it's something special. The first time you ever get a walk up to the, the buck that you just killed and you pull his head up and you grab his antlers for the first time, what was kind of running through your brain at this point? I was kind of in shock and, and my buddy that came and helped me track it and get it out. He was just, he, he, he helped me track my deer the year before. And he just like, he, he was just as excited for me as I was. And, uh, you know, kind of kneel down and grab the antlers and, and pick his head up. And he, uh, he was just as excited and, you know, telling me, oh man, that's a great buck. And, and I was just so thankful to get the chance to go out yeah. um, and enjoy it and have that encounter. Um, it, it was um, really exciting yeah. to, to hold on to his hand and just a, a sense of accomplishment, um, kind of, uh, you know, like I, I knew the deer was in the area, even though I hadn't had a picture of him for a month i was confident he would still be around um he was the biggest buck on camera um all year and had been uh, seven run i ran the cameras after yeah yeah and he was by far the biggest uh he was the most mature he was three and a half years old and just to i don't know it almost felt surreal be like all right I've, i haven't seen him in a month but i knew he'd be in the area and <clears throat> I knew I had, this was my best day to do it. It all came together and to watch him for as long as I had to, um, it just, it was hard not to break down, I guess, at, at, for, you know, for a minute there. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, that's good, man. That's a, I mean, it's a positive thing. It's this, uh, it's this moment that we all, uh, we all kind of live for, whether you have the ability to, you know, hunt, five days or you have the ability right. to get out there and hunt you know 50 days right, right. Uh, it, it's it's the moment at the end in somewhat is the same right i mean it's mm-hmm. i don't know it's just i geek out i think one thing that i really like about this hunting community and and doing this podcast is that i love hearing those moments that are similar but you know all different for different people but at this at the end of the day it's like there's this mo there's there's moments there's big moments right. or little moments or you know like for me some of the moments that i can think of is like uh my wife being there when my wife shot her first turkey or mm-hmm. you know some of these moments that are upcoming for me like when i uh, i get to take my kids out hunting at some yep. point or walking up on a shed antler and picking it up and just being like, dude, I am the first human to ever touch this. You know what I mean? Right, or, right. or pick up, pick a buck's head up or that you've been chasing for a while, or, you know, you put a lot of time and energy into, I don't know. It's just, it's these moments that, uh, it, and to be honest with you, I don't, and I don't know how you feel and I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, <laughs> but I've never, like, I don't do a lot of reading or of, you know, 
uh, off. Like I don't read a lot of books or magazine articles where people try to describe this really deep philosophy, you know, philosophy behind hunting or, you know, express all these emotions and stuff because I feel like one, that's something that someone has to go experience for themselves. And two, it, it never, it never is relatable to me because I just feel like something's just a little bit different. I love hearing people's experiences. I love, you know, the stories and all that. I mean, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, but I, but I don't know. Uh, That's just, I'm a freak, I guess. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's reaction is going to be slightly different and, um, everybody takes, takes it all differently. Yeah. All right, so you're not done yet, you know. Being a resident there in Michigan, you get two tags. So, um, what uh, what was the next step? Right, you hunted one, you hunted one more day, but then on the 13th you went back in the timber, and this was on the uh, a different farm, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. This is on a new property. All right. So, real quickly, describe this property. How many acres? Terrain, ag, you know, thickness. About ten to twelve acres. Uh, small parcels right in there. small parcels um it's off of a pretty big river here locally um mostly all fragmites and there is about a two acre one and a half to two acre chunk um of river bottom that would like when you watch kansas and whatnot all the huge trees in it kind of wide open um, the ground is all green and clear in the middle of all these fragmites. And that was, that was where I wanted to get into. Um, there's a dike system that runs parallel to the river about, oh, 15, 20 yards in off the river and the fragmites that border the river. Um, I found a buck bed on there in early October when I scouted it, but that was, I want to say impossible, but it would be difficult to try and slip in on him of where, where he was bedded. He was bedded right up at the point of this dike that was about seven to eight feet tall. So he could see over a lot of the fragmites and see down any of the, uh, down the one, one main groom trail that, that ran parallel to the dike. Yeah. So he had escape routes. So it's like, okay, this is where he's bedding, but I can't, I, I couldn't push it because of wind factors too. So I eased off of it to the, uh, would be south east a little ways, um, figuring that if he's, when he goes to come in, he's going to come in through this clearing or skirt it and then go up to his bed to catch the wind, the predominant north northwest wind to get into his bed. Okay. Um, and I hunted almost right smack in the middle of the clearing to just off the edge of the center of it. Um, and in it was a lot of like duck potato. I guess what they have out in Iowa. I guess I'm not familiar with that term. Yeah. The, I don't know the CHP guys. That's what they call it on one of their duck potato. Uh, they call it <laughs> duck potato. Oh. It's like some green vegetation that the deer eat a lot in the wintertime. Oh, um, I off think... of these river bottoms. Okay. But nothing I had personally ever seen before other than on one of their videos. I was like, all right, well, this, 
going to be more of a late season food source, but also with this dike system and all the frag mites and as thick and nasty as it is around here, if these bucks start chasing does, the does are going to want to come into the clearing to get out of all that stuff. Yeah. And the bucks are going to try and use the frag mites and the dike as a way to kind of corral them in there. And so I set up my stand October 3rd, shot that doe on October 5th. And then, um, the 13th of November, <clears throat> it was when the warm weather in the Midwest had finally broke. Okay. And we were coming in, the cold front was coming in and, but we did have oh, probably like 20 mile an hour winds, but it's like, well, cold fronts here. So I gotta, I have to at least go, go give it a shot. Okay. And I kicked up a couple of deer that were right under my tree stand as I was walking in a uh, small six point and a, a doe took off. And then I watched a couple of does throughout the evening. And then just before dark, uh, right by the end of legal shooting time, I just hear all holy heck break out in front of me to the straight out in front of me would be to the uh southwest yeah and i knew exactly what it was there wasn't even a doubt in my mind there was a buck going to be on a doe and i had a doe decoy out in front of me i put a uh put a doe decoy out about 17 18 yards out in front of me and this buck is hot on this doe and she came running directly at me and she went to hook to go to the north and she saw my doe decoy standing there and she absolutely froze. And I, and he's about 10, 15 yards behind her facing me. And I'm just like, Oh gosh, did this, did this doe decoy just cost me this deer? Like this would be the biggest buck I've ever shot in Michigan shooting it with a bow. And I think, a tactic that I've used many, many times before is going to cost me the biggest deer. And, uh, he just, he put his nose back down, walked right, started to approach that, the doe he was chasing from behind. He started grunting right at her. And I had another small <clears throat> scrub buck come following behind them. And he turned around, chased him off, ran about 10, 15 yards. So he's at about 30, five yards away right and after he calmed down from that he turned back around started walking to that doe and she was starting to get comfortable around the decoy a little bit and she proceeded to take a couple steps into the opening and before he got completely into the clearing that was when i drew yeah and at about 22 yards broadside is when i'd taken the shot at 25 uh about 22 yards yeah yeah was he was he tense at that point or was he just really relaxed he was he was relaxed as far as from chasing out the other buck but he was all rutted up um he he didn't have his ears pinned back or anything but he was getting ready to put his nose back down and push her yeah um right as i was getting ready to release the arrow um, he was standing there for a minute and all of a sudden he started to drop his head down just as I was releasing the arrow. And, um, 
I had actually dropped my arm. I did peak. I will admit that. Yeah. And uh, I still ended up hitting him good and, and getting him. But um, at first, initially for a second there, I thought I'd missed. But yeah. And then, so you thought you missed, but then, um, like, how much time uh, went by before you kind of realized, no, I did hit him? Did you have to get out of the tree stand to to identify that? Yeah, yeah, I got, I could see my my knock, uh, I could see my arrow down there, but I couldn't get a good read on it with the foliage behind it and stuff, and some of the taller, you know, knee high grasses in there. And all of a sudden I got down to it and it's coated in blood. I'm like, Oh, yeah. Oh. And I look over and I'm like, Oh, there's some blood. And I just kept walking. It, it, I was like, wow, there's a lot of blood here. And, um, so I went back to the truck, put my pad, I dropped a bunch of gear off and my everything at the truck, grabbed my bow and my backpack and, um, changed my boots and, headed in to, to start tracking at least a little bit and all of a sudden it just opened right up and I knew he was big when I'd seen him I more or less saw his frame when he was chasing that doe and then I just focused on trying to get a shot and then when I got up to him that was when I realized how big he actually was yeah so now that was your biggest buck now this was, does this buck beat the buck that you shot on November, on uh, November 1st? Yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. So out of curiosity, you know, describe the first buck that you shot. Oh, <laughs> more or less a typical Michigan three and a half year old. Well, he was, his, his body was big, but, uh, antlers, he was, uh, 16 inches wide, um, like three and a half to four inch brow tines. Um, and then his G2s would have been about six inches. Yeah. Uh, G3s were rated about four. And then it's one sided uh, um, G4 at, I don't know, about three inches. Uh, you know, not a monster compared to what a lot of other people are shooting, but it's probably 90 five maybe a hundred inch deer maybe a little bit better somewhere right in there um, yeah but at, at that point it was the biggest biggest buck i'd ever shot in michigan so yeah um yeah. that it, to me it was it was all about that all right so now this buck that you you just you know did you know when when this buck came through that he was the biggest buck then that you uh, ever shot uh, no, I didn't realize he was quite to that, uh, magnitude. Okay. So then, um, so it took you until you walked up on him to realize that then. Right. Yeah. I'd seen his, like I said, I'd seen his frame was pretty good size. And I, I, then I was just focusing on trying to get a shot. And then after that other one, smaller buck had come following up behind them and he chased him off. Uh, all I was doing was just focusing on, that front shoulder and in the eight to 10 inches behind it. Yeah. All right. So now describe this buck to us. How uh, roughly, what do you think he scored? Describe his characteristics. How old do you think he was? He was three and a half. Okay. Um, 
with a lot better genetics. Uh, he was three and a half, about 18 inches wide. Um, his G2s were right in the, uh, I believe one was around 11, and the other one was around nine and a half to 10. And his G3s were both in that eight and a half to nine inch region. Um, kind of tight, didn't go out or towards his nose. He was a, he was a tight wrap rack. Um, brow tans were about five and four and a half to five inches. And he did score around one, a taxidermist score around 120 and three eighths. Okay. So this, then, so now this guy is your biggest. And so after you, you know, you just, you just shoot the two biggest deer that you've ever shot on minimal time right on like mm-hmm. on five total days of hunting you you take two, down two deer um like did the, you, the you second pretty... property no no trail camera or anything that was just yeah i scouted in october so this is the spot i what i thought to be the spot within the spot of where i wanted to be and that was that was it the the small property i had the trail camera history but the second one no trail cameras or nothing it was more yeah. or less, uh, I'm going to get what I get. Yeah. But it, it all kind of worked out. And it's, I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. to me like, uh, regardless, it's, uh, one hell of a year, man. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, uh, one that it'll be tough for me to beat in Michigan for quite some time. Yeah. So after you have a, a killer season like this, you know, it's, it's your, it's your personal best. It's a, it's a hunting career defining moment or a year for you. How do you go into next year now? I mean, what kind of conversations are you having with yourself? It's like, okay, do I now potentially try to bump up to four year old or do I go for bigger antlers or is your goal maybe more time in the woods? Like what kind of conversations are you having with yourself? Um, right now I need to be in the woods scouting, doing postseason scouting. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be coming up here pretty quick. Um, and, and I do have, I have a, a, a family member that likes to razz me a little bit because they go up and they do a big hunting camp and whatnot in Northern Michigan. Um, and I likes to throw the ribbing out of, Oh, shot that out you know we're hunting public land or state land right and during gun season and well for years they've baited and stuff like that and it's like well so my challenge to myself and and like i mentioned bob miller uh and i he's gonna we're we're our goal is to to try and take a couple of couple of hope and young or try to get up near their public land deer, more or less e-scout, boost to the ground uh, here in the springtime, and just go in and hang and bang. Um, but that's that's my goal is to try and this, this family member kind of ribbing me a little bit. I want to uh, more or less go in public land and try and get it done. Right. So not necessarily a, um, a different type of deer goal, but a goal on a different piece of property, kind of, uh, uh, shooting from the hip, being a lot more mobile, you know, going into untapped ground type of deal. Yeah. Sometimes it just almost gets this feeling like he doesn't think I can get it done somewhere else. 
So, all right, well, that's going to be my goal this year is to uh, to get out there and, and hunt some state ground, just go out and, and make it happen. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, man. Uh, sounds like you had one hell of a year. Congratulations, man. Uh, good luck this upcoming year. And uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, 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 to hop on and chat with us. And I'll tell you this. I'm looking forward to how your public land adventures go. It's either gonna, I got a feeling it's either go really good or uh, it'll be one heck of a grind right well just take it as a learning experience right (laughs) exactly right exactly cool man appreciate you having me on dan and there you have it guys and gals another episode in the books man huge shout out to all of you thanks to you for making what i do work and uh, if it wasn't for you man i don't know where i'd be i'd probably still be in a cubicle somewhere but i really appreciate your attention your time, your energy, and uh, keep an eye out for the Nine Fingered Kitchen coming soon. Huge shout out to all of the partners of the, the podcast. We have Vortex Optics, Ozonics, Wasp, and Lone Wolf. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. And uh, other than that, man, get outside. It's shed season. This is a perfect opportunity to get children out, to get uh, new hunters out and excited, to get uh, the wife out, or just to get out, period. Disconnect from the phone. Disconnect from the, uh, um, the computers, the TVs, the social media, and just breathe fresh air, man. It will cure your problems. I guarantee it. Have a good day, take care, and we'll talk to you next time.